You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. If you know me, or if you have been a listener to this podcast, you know that my area of scholarly interest and the focus of my doctoral studies and dissertation was theology and the arts. And integral to several of my ongoing series for this show is to share with you the works of Christian artists. But to have another fellow theologian whose interest is especially theology and the arts as a guest gets me among my peeps. A native of Nottingham, England, Dr. Darren J.N. Middleton received the Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of Manchester, his Master of Philosophy in Modern Christian Doctrine from the University of Oxford, and his Ph.D. in Literature and Theology from the University of Glasgow. After teaching five years at Rhodes College and a 24-year tenure at Texas Christian University, Dr. Middleton is now Professor of Literature and Theology and Director of the Baylor University's Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. He is here to share with us some of the range of his work, but especially to talk about his most recent book, The Writer and the Cross, Interviews with Authors of Christian Historical Fiction. So welcome, Darren. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Well, let's begin um, by letting you talk about your own story. But let me let me bracket that a little bit. Uh, because in your in your interview with Sarah uh, Brahman, and and correct me on these names uh, as we as we go through, uh, you ask her to uh, what adjectives that she would use to describe her own Lutheranism, and then in your interview with Sarah or with Caroline Coleman, uh, and asking her about her story and borrowing from Søren Kierkegaard's title on stages on your way of life. Uh, she answers in the wonderful way of, of, of three options of the Shakespearean dramatic events of life of birth and school and those kind of things, or from the book of Ecclesiastes uh, with the time to plant and time to take up and a time to harvest, those kind of things. Uh, and then also the Christian stages. Uh, so what have you found helpful about how to describe your own spiritual journey? And especially as that's led you to being a theologian. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, thank you again, David, for having me on, and I appreciate the um, um, the time that we will have together. Uh, I appreciate this first question. It's, um, I think, in terms of uh, adjectives, I think the one that I would plummet for would be labyrinthine. Um, you know, I I would have to say that my spiritual journey journey has been rather circuitous uh, along the way. Um, I was born and raised in Nottingham in the English East Midlands among uh, the same imposing headstocks of the uh, collieries that D.H. Lawrence observed from Eastwood. I was born not really a stone's throw away from Eastwood and Sons and Lovers as a novel that I read uh, really early on in my time was was, uh, almost like holding up a a mirror uh, to myself, if only because I was a, a working class kid, a, a collier's son who um, found uh, a whole world in books, particularly in novels and short stories and poems, something uh, transformative. 
And uh, I kept reading, um, went to a public school, uh, which tended not to sort of graduate too many students. Um, but I got out by, uh, by hook or by crook and uh, found my way as a first gen student to uh, the University of Manchester. Uh, and from there to the University of Oxford, and then finally to the University of Glasgow. But let me just back up a tad. I was not raised in a religious uh, family at all. In fact, actually, one or two members of of my family were kind of actively um, non-religious, even uh, anti-religious. And so I didn't really darken the door of a church. I think I went to a youth club uh, a couple of times in my early teens, but that was about it. But the funny thing about religion in the United Kingdom is, of course, there's an established church and every public school has to uh, teach religious education to their children um, from the ages of five through 16. And uh, one of the one of the interesting things I'm often fond of telling my New Testament colleagues this is that um, for, for all of its ills, um, the English educational system taught me the synoptic gospel problem by the time I was 11. Uh, and I found myself sort of fascinated by the fact that we have these four gospel portraits and so on. Um, and that, that caused me to engage in a kind of a lifelong delving into the scriptures, which kind of, uh, for me, reached a, um, a really important moment when I was 16. That was when I sort of decided to come to the faith. Uh, and it was a kind of a cold October evening in, in uh, the United Kingdom. The, the wind was was howling outside, but there was an evangelical rally and a, a really interesting, very charismatic preacher who um, preached the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. I do remember that. Um, didn't call it that at the time, but I remember hearing about it much, much later and recognizing, yeah, that, that's the thing that got me down the aisle. And from there, I sort of hooked into a local Baptist church. And the interesting thing about the Baptist Church in the United Kingdom is, like the Methodist Church, like the Congregational Church that D.H. Lawrence attended for a while, those nonconformist dissenting churches, those free churches, actually made inroads into working class communities in the ways in which the established church did not. So it seemed fairly natural for me to sort of graft myself onto a local Baptist church, was baptized at the age of 16, and felt um, something of a calling um, I won't say there was any kind of Damascene experience on my part. There was no blinding light that was calling me into the ministry. But I think I just found myself uh, conversing with a number of folk who recognized that I was very interested in theological study, very interested in preaching and in serving in the church. And so from Nottingham, I went to, again, the University of Manchester, studied for the Baptist ministry there. Uh, concluded some of that, uh, concluded that ministerial training at the University of Oxford, and then sort of went into my PhD studies in literature and theology at the University of Glasgow. I met my wife, who is a, a, an American um, from Memphis, which is my, in some ways, my spiritual home these days, uh, musically, culturally, um, from a literary standpoint. I think it was Faulkner who once said that the uh, the South begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel uh, there in Memphis, down on Union. Um, it's a very magical city for me. And that was where I became, when I was in Memphis, uh, a theologian in residence at First Baptist Church, Memphis, at the same time as cutting my academic teeth, um, working um, as an assistant professor at Rhodes College, which is a kind of a small liberal arts Presbyterian church, USA, 
uh, college. From after about five years towards the end of the 20th century, I sort of picked up a job teaching religion and literature at Texas Christian University, which is uh, associated with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And um, was there for about 24 years before I came to uh, Baylor University, where I now direct the um, interdisciplinary core here uh, at the university. Along the way, and this is a, a key point, I think, it kind of illustrates the circuitous nature of, uh, of, of my journey. I have spent a lot of time at Thomas Merton's monastery, um, the Abbey of Gethsemane, just outside of Bardstown in Kentucky. And, um, you know, been on week-long retreats and weekends, and, and I know a couple of the monks there and, and have found myself over the years conversing with them, um, talking about spiritual formation. And in 2013, that culminated in a desire to kind of go through the RCIA program in Fort Worth and begin the journey of becoming Catholic. And so I entered the church, was received into Mother Church in Easter Eve 2014, and I've been Catholic ever since. So there's a Protestant side to me, and there's a Catholic side to me. I'm, I'm rather fond, actually, um, of Graham Greene's observation. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. I've written on him. Um, Greene used to say that... Um, he, he considered himself a Protestant in a room full of Catholics and a Catholic in a room full of Protestants. And there's, so, so there's something about that that stays with me. I, I almost see myself as a kind of living, breathing Venn diagram. So labyrinthine, circuitous. Um, and I, I will say just one more thing before I let you ask the next question. Um, I took as the confessional name uh, Augustine. Augustine's always been a kind of touchstone for me. And I've always thought of Augustine as um, a wandering catechumen. Um, here's someone who was a kind of a fervent, energetic, very passionate man, uh, in his, certainly in his search for truth, unafraid to um, pose those questions whose answers do not come easily if they come at all unafraid to entertain a variety of intellectual and spiritual positions at various points in his life. Um, all of that is laid bare in the confessions, of course. And, um, and that, in some ways, without putting myself on the same level of Augustine, I wouldn't want to do that. I, I have found in his rather circuitous journey something that resembles my own. Well, in your interview with Mary Sherratt, you noted that for Hildegard, uh, the soul is symphonic and that music is the first language of God. And to that, Mary adds that for Hildegard, song was the highest form of prayer. You have a special relationship with and an interest in Rastafari music. So talk about this and whether or not for you it connects you personally with God in a way that Hildegard describes, uh, and if so, in what way, and are there other forms uh, that do this for you as well? Okay, so I grew up in the English East Midlands, and that's an in, you know Nottingham is an industrial town, and that was very attractive to many from the Caribbean, particularly from Jamaica. Uh, shortly after the Second World War, when uh, Britain's uh, immigration uh, rules were relaxed and the rebuilding of the UK after the Second World War took place, 
I grew up around so many um, sons and daughters of Jamaican immigrants and started listening to reggae, partly because of its hypnotic drum and bass line. Uh, from there, I started to ask very basic questions about um, the, the themes and the personalities that were being referenced in those songs, um, more or less repeatedly. I wanted to know who, who is this figure, the lion, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is Haley Selassie? Who is Jah? Um, more importantly, what what is Babylon? What is Zion? And before I realized it, um, there was so much sort of biblically saturated imagery in those songs that it really did sort of catch my attention. At the same time as I'm reading the scriptures for my um, uh, state-mandated public religious education class, reading them from a Christian perspective, I'm actually growing up and listening to the music of, uh, of Jamaican immigrants and really finding myself transfixed by that music. Um, transfixed especially by what I later come to understand as a kind of um, theomusicology of black somebodiness. There's a, there's a sense in which most Rastafari reggae music is an attempt to reclaim something of that somebodiness that colonialism um, has kind of tried to erase. Um, and the figure of Haley Selassie holds that notion of black somebodiness together. Listen to any reggae song, you'll hear a great deal about uh, themes of home and exile. And those get sort of couched in terms of language of Zion, which is, which is Africa, which is Ethiopia. Um, and then Babylon, which is uh, any society that's ruled by late modern capitalism that that um, uh, destroys the subjectivity and the somebodiness of individuals within it. So I found myself sort of transfixed by that. And, and, you know, obviously the positive vibrations, as Bob Marley used to describe reggae, the positive vibrations that are associated with reggae actually got me thinking about music as, as a way uh, into um, an understanding of God. Uh, in the same way that Hildegard does. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a there's a huge difference between listening to reggae in the 20th century, as I was, and and then composing the kind of music that she was during her own time in the medieval period. But um, in in a formal sense, there's um, there's there's a lot of connections there in the sense of um, how art, broadly construed, but especially music, becomes a kind of engine that powers the vehicle of, of faith and religion. Um, it, it transports people. It, it arrests them in a way sometimes <laughs> doctrine and ritual struggle to do. Um, music takes people into different places. It facilitates a kind of mental migration. Again, think of the Rastas yearning for Zion in the midst of living in Babylon, and you get a sense of how the music can transport and uh, an, an individual. Um, other music does that for me as well. I have a um, fairly eclectic taste. Uh, my my late teenage son kind of struggles to figure out how to pin me down, which is <laughs> something I'll take as a point of pride. Um, because sometimes I'm listening to Leonard Cohen and that, that strong sense of um, uh, believing skepticism that you'll find in his music. Um, in fact, actually, that, that famous song that he wrote, uh, Hallelujah, has that line in there about a broken hallelujah. That became the title of one of my books that I wrote um, a few years ago. So I do like the, the kind of 
uh, the dark, melancholic, kind of honest faith of someone like Leonard Cohen. Um, to go back to the period when I really came of age musically, um, that would be the 1980s in the United Kingdom. Gosh, there's a lot of bands around uh, doing their thing at that point, and I noticed that some of them, um, including Duran Duran, just got in, you know, in, you know, sort of um, welcomed into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that tells me how old I am. But Depeche Mode from the 1980s, an English band that really explored with their lyrics and, and a kind of a strange synth pop that they put together. Um, their lyrics kind of explored, one of their songs is called Blasphemous Rumors, which really is a kind of an, an aural theodicy. It's really reflecting on some of the same themes that you'd find in the book of Job. So I find that rather, rather appealing. And they're, they're still going, of course. Um, more recently, um, you don't live for any length of time in the South and the Southwest without coming into contact with country music. And that appeals to my the, the, my sense of the narrative quality of human existence. There's always a, a fallen redemption motif going on in in, um, in country music. Uh, I must say I'm drawn to Sturgill Simpson, who's a, a, an interesting Kentucky-based um, and Kentucky-born and raised, I believe, um, country musician, more kind of a, an outlaw country musician in the in the vein of Waylon Jennings, uh, who is also a, a favorite of mine. I, I certainly recommend his song, I Do Believe, uh, which is a, a fascinating um, piece of country music. But Sturgill Simpson is is unusual to me because, you know, country music singers singing about Jesus and salvation and sin are almost a dime a dozen. Sturgill Simpson is a country musician who is talking about, singing about string theory and uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So that kind of appeals to, to my eclectic interests as well. Um, when I'm writing, uh, the kind of music that really transports me, um, you know, th in a thinking capacity in terms of my need for contemplation and silence, there's a range of musicians that I draw on that, that I've created a kind of Spotify playlist for and those guys kind of transport me as too and 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 um here i have in mind the japanese pianist ruichi sakamoto um the norwegian trumpeteer uh Arve hendrickson and um and then i would think i'd have to go for the american uh, avant-garde minimalist or ambient composer harold budd who unfortunately was one of COVID's very uh, many uh, victims um, in in the last couple of years, but just a fantastic musician whose whose instrumental work I think is very helpful for me um, when I'm trying to uh, think about writing as prayer, when I'm trying to think about writing as a vocation, when I'm trying to think about the importance of silence. Well, you have um, done a lot of work in relating theology and the art. Uh, and so kind of in general, a, a kind of two-part question, you know, in general, how do you see that relationship? Uh, and then and then can kind of move to the second part would be you focused on literature. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that part after you answer the first part. So, Okay. I think I'd go back to that, that claim that I made a little earlier. I think um, art broadly construed, uh, but literature, especially for me, but I'm no, no stranger to music as well, um, as you pointed out, with my interest in the Rastafari and reggae. But art, broadly construed, is the engine that powers the vehicle of religion or faith. Um, 
I know that in, in Christianity, of course, we it took a long time for images to be, uh, you know, part of the, um, um, the the architecture, if it will, if you will, of of the Christian faith, of Christian doctrine, and Christian practice. Um, you have to go to someone like the um, the sixth or seventh century Syrian monk uh, John Damascene with his whole argument that. Christ is the icon of the visible God, and because of that, we can, we don't need to to, to smash our icons, as it were. We just need to situate them in our minds in in the right kind of way. Think of them as as pictorial representations, things that gesture towards towards the most important, the most ultimate thing, which is which is God in Christ. Without John Damascene, I wonder if we would have a Giotto or a a Rembrandt or a, or even a Bob Marley come to that matter of fact, um, because it's it's almost as though, and I, and I hesitate to sort of say that one individual makes this possible for the rest of history. Um, I'm suspicious of those those kind of sweeping claims, but but John Damascene in some ways makes it possible for for art to flourish within the Christian tradition, um, of which I am a part, of course. Um, and I and I think I'm, I've always been drawn to the way in which, outside of the intellectualizing of the faith, which is part of part of my job as a theologian, um, I'm drawn to to the art that actually uh, arrests the soul. For me, that's been music. I mean, uh, excuse me, not music, certainly music, but but mostly literature. Um, I think it was. Somewhat into my master's degree at Oxford, that I came across the work of A.S. Byatt, a collection of essays that she put together. She, of course, was a, a novelist. She wrote that fantastic historical romance called Possession, which was made into a film. Uh, in her collection of essays on history, she she talks about how narration, um, the, the simple act of storytelling, narration, she says, is as vital to the to human existence as breath and circulation of the blood. And I, I, I think I, I would have to say I, I agree with her. There, there is a sense in which we all uh, live by the stories that we tell. And uh, for me, good literature is a bit like, um, well, to me, uh, I'll, I'll quote Carl Dennis on this. Carl Dennis, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Um, in Practical Gods, his collection of poems, he describes a book, a good book, as as like a ship with its prow pointed toward Ithaca. The way in which a good piece of fiction, a good story will actually set you off on a journey, will lead to an adventure of the spirit. And for me, um, you know, just to give that some, some flesh, for me in the late 1980s, that book was The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantzakis, the, the, the Greek writer, much Pilloried by his own church and uh, condemned by the by the Roman Catholic Church, his his novel about Jesus, which is what I just referenced, was um, placed on the Vatican's index of forbidden books. Um, the novel was condemned posthumously in the late 1980s, if only because Martin Scorsese made a film version of it, of course, with a very young Willem Dafoe and a Harvey Keitel playing the part of Jesus and Judas, respectively. I have to say that um, in that novel, when I read it for the first time, that that was a kind of Damascene experience for me. That that I would to this day regard as a kind of fifth gospel to me, because 
Outside of maybe the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus comes across in a kind of strange, enigmatic, almost puzzling way, I don't see too much humanity in, the, in, in Jesus in the Gospels. Um, I struggle to see it. Um, I, I, I get the sense that he's divine. I have to you know, say that in, my, in all of my reading of the Gospels over the years, I've, I've often struggled to find the, the humanity of Jesus um, in anything other than the Gospel of Mark, which to this day is my favorite Gospel. But in Kazantzakis's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, controversial, scandalous, uh, in many ways, um, problematic um, from a number of different angles. Nonetheless, a novel that, that worked a magic in me, uh, a kind of what I would call a spiritual alchemy. Uh, it, it changed the way I thought about Jesus. There was something about the humanity of this figure struggling to figure out what kind of Messiah God wanted him to be. Um, that that is was deeply meaningful and deeply powerful, um, you know. And I've found um, other novels have done that for me as well. Um, when my son was born in two thousand and four, a couple of years later, I came across Cormac McCarthy's novel *The Road*, which is an exquisite um, father-son pilgrimage novel. Um, it's bleak, almost relentlessly so. Uh, you'd struggle to find good news in the middle of it. But I, I think it's actually operating underneath the surface, however, um, in what the father has to say to, to the son about the need to survive the post-apocalyptic landscape that they are traversing. Um, it's a very, very powerful novel, and I think it landed into my lap, as it were, um, at just the right time. I'm Nancy Malone has a fantastic book called Walking the Literary Labyrinth, in which she talks about book providence or story providence, the way certain books just get handed to us or recommended to us at, at what seems like just the right moment. Um, and we read them and things are never really the same after having read them. And I was drawn to the way in which literature does that for me. Um, and by the time I finished my um, master's degree at Oxford, I realized that going down the route of philosophical theology, which is what I've been doing up until that point, was really not for me. I needed to do something with literature and theology and look at the way in which um, some really interesting things happen at the interface of those two disciplines. And so I went to Glasgow and the rest, <laughs> for me at least, is history. Well, we're here to kind of talk about your most recent book, uh, The Writer and the Cross, um, which in some ways uh, you say is kind of a sequel to your book, uh, Theology After Writing. Uh, how did the idea for this book come about, and especially how did Johnny Cash, of all people, <laughs> have something to do with the formation of this idea? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting to talk about a talk about story providence or book providence. Uh, Johnny Cash's novel about the Apostle Paul, which he uh, imaginatively titled "The Man in White," um, that landed into my lap. Um, I would say around about uh, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, thereabouts. Um, 
and and I read it, and it, it's a fascinating novel. I mean, I knew that Johnny Cash referred to himself as the Man in Black, and and I knew that Johnny had had done a film called The Gospel Road, in which he'd kind of written the score, and and I mean, he was a very imaginative, creative kind of Christian artist. But you know, going into the uh, late two uh, thousands, um, I, I was not aware that he had written a novel about the Apostle Paul. And um, I had just finished, just published actually in 2008, more or less, um, a, a book uh, called Theology After Reading, which was um, an attempt to sort of look at the major doctrines in the Christian faith, starting with with God and then moving through other doctrines like the doctrine of theological anthropology, the doctrine of Christology, and then ecclesiology, and then eschatology, and kind of taking those doctrinal themes and pairing them with particular novels that uh, in which those themes appeared. So um, again, The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantzakis helped me sort of explore the doctrine of Christology. A fantastic uh, novel called The Wine of Astonishment by Earl Lovelace, a Trinidadian writer, enabled me to look at Global South Ecclesiology. Graham Greene's The End of the Affair enabled me to look at the doctrine of God, and Toni Morrison's Sula enabled me to look at theological anthropology. And to cap it all off, a, a kind of a, a modern uh, retelling of Dante's Inferno, this time with a, a theologian playing the part of Dante, who is then sort of guided through hell while he's still alive. Um, it's called Gehenna, but it actually got republished with another title called My Visit to Hell. Um, really imaginative retelling of Dante's Inferno set in the modern period. Um, I taught all those novels in a class on theology and literature, then kind of with my students' help, put this book together and used it in class and then kind of retired the novels the way one might retire a basketball jersey for a famous star and started teaching new novels. I wanted a new way of looking at theology and literature and it, it occurred to me um, around about 2009, same time as I wrote, I read uh, Johnny Cash's novel, that Theology After Reading was a book that focused on doctrines. What about the theologians that were responsible for those doctrines? Um, not just the doctrine of sin, but how about Augustine as somebody who helped shape that doctrine? And then Calvin as somebody who added to that doctrine, uh, albeit several centuries later. Um, and Johnny Cash's novel got me got me interested in first of all biblical novels, novels that were imaginative retellings of of uh, particular characters from the New Testament that we, we would be able to uh, recognize. So, um, you know, novels about Jesus, novels about Paul, um, but also novels about what you might call, uh, though I don't mean anything derogatory by this. Uh, minor characters in the New Testament. So uh, there's a novel out there that I've found very, very successful in my teaching uh, by um, a woman called Mary Lee Weil. She wrote a fantastic novella called Ancient Rage, which is the story of John the Baptist told through the eyes of his mother, Elizabeth. So again, if kind of a minor character, she doesn't get a great deal of screen time, as it were, in um, in the New Testament, but this novella was a really interesting one. I soon realized that there are lots of biblical novels, um, both Old Testament, New Testament. And I thought to myself, that's not really what I want to do. What I want to do is focus on those theologians 
that are from, let's say, the first century onwards all the way up to our modern period. So I kind of thought about a book in which I could take the four major periods of the Christian faith. So the patristic period from 100 to 451, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance from 500 to 1500 AD, and then the Reformation and post-Reformation periods from 1500 to 1750, and then finally the modern period from 1750 to the present day. So I, I kind of, it's an arbitrary structure. Lots of historians would want to question that, of course, but I thought, this is, this is helpful. Um, and it was certainly very helpful in a practical sense because I, I would often teach not only undergraduates, but also adult Christian education workshops and seminars, Sunday schools, in which I'd, I'd teach Christian history using that fourfold structure and take, take uh, anyone who was interested in, in a kind of a bullet train tour through some of the major thinkers and movements and themes and trajectories in those periods. But what I wanted to do was see if there were novels out there written by individuals who were retelling the lives as well as the ideas associated with some of those major thinkers, those major makers and remakers of Christian doctrine from across the centuries. And to cut a long story short, um, David, I found practically a cottage industry of novels out there. Some of them go back to the 19th century, but more or less from, I would say, around about 1940, all the way up to the present day, there's been a kind of um, a steady, a steady kind of ripple that has gone into a, a, a full-on, you know, stream now of, 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 of these novels, which retell the lives of some of these great Christian theologians. And here I'm thinking of people like Augustine, from the patristic period, Thomas Aquinas or Hildegard from the medieval period, Calvin and Luther from the Reformation. And then in the modern period, people like Søren Kierkegaard, the Danish Lutheran theologian in the 19th century, all the way up to, to Pope Francis in our own time. Um, and those novelists I discovered were every bit as interesting as the stories that they were telling. That's what became fascinating to me. And so I thought of creating a completely different book I wish I could go back and interview Johnny Cash oh. and ask him about his book. That would be just uh, wonderful. Um, what I decided to do was pick 12 writers, very different, with different backgrounds, different stories to tell, writing different novels. And there's plenty more where those 12 came from, um, who would agree to sit down with me and have an extended uh, conversation about their art, what they were trying to do with it, and their sense of where they are relative to the other novels that are out there doing very similar kinds of things. And that, that broad genre is something I call Christian historical fiction. So I have Johnny Cash to thank for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you say you use the, the description of um, um, wanting to uh, disclose the spiritual and theological overlay of the mm. authors as well as the protagonist. Right. So, so the author, I was, I was trained at a time in literature when, you know, my professors are saying, you know, the author is dead, right? Going back to the 1960s, Roland Barthes' famous article about the author being dead. You, you, you write something, you put it out there into the world, and then the audience makes of it what they will, Right. At least that's the way the theory goes. And the author is dead. What the author means by it, what the author intends by it, 
is almost by the by the audience is the thing. And of course, it's very popular, um, even with reading the Bible, to focus on uh, reception history or the way the audience has received something across time. Um, I'm still fascinated by those things. I, I don't discount them. And in one sense, yeah, for sure, the author is dead because I, I, I you know, I, I've seen it illustrated in my own life sometimes. I've, I've put something out there with my students and then watched while they have read what I've put out there. And it's not a willful misreading, but what you hear coming back to you is not what you intended. And it's almost like you, you feel compelled to sort of, you know, take a time out and say, well, that, actually, that's not what I was trying to do there. And, and maybe I should have done it a whole lot better than I did. But but anyway, what what I became interested in was the, the, the writers themselves. I really wanted to get at their fiction, but I found as they were telling their stories um, that they were every bit as fascinating as the stories they were trying to tell. I mean, Johnny Cash is a good case. I mean, I wish I could go back and interview him because the way he identified throughout his life with the Apostle Paul, you can hear it in some of the songs. Uh, I think he has a song, I'm going to sit right down and talk to St. Paul or something like that. Um, one wonders how that conversation would go. Um, there is a sense in which Johnny also felt that he had a thorn in his flesh, right? Uh, whether it was his amphetamine use or, 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 or what, I have no idea. I mean, he talks in his own autobiography about identifying with uh, the Apostle Paul, particularly with um, that, that whole Romans 7 motif of, of the good that I will, I do not do, the evil that I do not will, I find myself doing. There's something about that tension going on within Johnny's soul that is, um, for Johnny, quite reminiscent of what he sees going on in the Apostle Paul. Um, so I wish I could go back and interview Johnny. I also wish I could go back and interview a Roman Catholic writer who died in 1961, which is about five years before I was born. Um, he actually is a fascinating individual. I mentioned to him um, in the in the preface to my book, uh, a man called Louis de Vol, um, uh, kind of an Austrian astrologer who was sought out by Hitler, who got a little worried about Hitler and the Nazis, made his way over to England, offered uh, his uh, astrological services to MI5, who then put him on the payroll. Um, but they were suspicious about him for all sorts of reasons. Um, he wrote a couple of, of, of autobiographies uh, in uh, during the Second World War that clearly made it it look as though he was working for the British Secret Service when, in fact, their relationship to him wasn't really quite formal. Anyway, to cut a long story short, um, I managed to take a look at the declassified files in the British National Archives on Louis Duvall, and that 200-page uh, file is just every bit as fascinating as the 17 or 18 Christian historical fictions that he put together um, he, he's a one-man cottage industry mm. in the 20th century of these historical fiction novels. He, and he was quite prolific. Uh, he tells a story. How much of it is true, I have no idea. But he tells the story of going to the Vatican one year and taking um, his latest novel, which I think was on St. Helena, uh, to the Pope. And then he says to the Pope, what would you like next? And the Pope says, oh, I don't know, maybe a novel on Thomas Aquinas. And nine months later, Louis Duvall comes back with um, a novel about St. Thomas Aquinas. 
He was very prolific, also somewhat of a problematic and colorful character. So his story, uh, if he's an author who is dead, then, 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 you know, I, I really don't know what I'm doing in a sense. He is very much alive, um, to his readers. If they are at all interested in the, in the author behind the story. And I know some people are not, but if they take a look at Lewis Duvall and, and gradually you're beginning to see a couple of articles and books coming out about this guy, cause he's entirely fascinating. But the, the, those I did interview, um, are all coming from a variety of different backgrounds. Some of them are established novelists working with major publishing empires. Others, interestingly enough, are working with either church denominational presses and putting out limited print runs of their novels because big publishing houses won't take them for all sorts of reasons, uh, or else they are self-publishing. That's what's fascinating, is that uh, this genre that is Christian historical fiction is um, clearly meeting a need. People are buying it, but the wider culture seems to be somewhat skeptical of what's what it's trying to do. And if you were to read read my book and look at the different interviewees, they, they all have different uh, perspectives on what it is they're trying to do. They're, but they're united for the most part by a desire not to be didactic, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, and earlier, maybe in the 19th century, people like um, John Henry Newman and Charles Kingsley put out Christian historical fictions that were in many ways didactic. Um, in the 20th and in the 21st century now, Christian historical fictions try to shy away from that. They just don't see the value of it. Well, in your interview with uh, Caroline Coleman, uh, you say of her, uh, the following interview discloses the sources and context behind Coleman's own Christian confessionalism something that leads her to an enlightening consideration of what constitutes, and these words I think are wonderful, fateful fiction. Um, develop that for me. What do you consider, how do you consider fiction to play a role in faithfulness? Um, I'll, I'll just to sort of connect with what I just said about didacticism, um, I wouldn't define faithful in terms of um, the novel being orthodox or trying to shoehorn some pre-existing theological belief into um, the form that is fiction. Um, that I don't think any of the novelists that I interview are at all comfortable with the idea of um, storytelling as some kind of second order activity to the more important um, activity that is um, theological dogma. Uh, let's put it that way. I, I think faithful fiction for me um, can be understood in two ways. First of all, it's faithful to um, faithful in a literary sense. Um, I think the the novelist Karen Coleman is a really good example. Her, her novel on Soren Kierkegaard um, is is just a master of historical research. I mean, she took herself off to the Danish West Indies at one point to look at the archives for the young woman that uh, Kierkegaard um, spurned uh, during his lifetime. Um, and and um, it, it's, it's really just 
um, and very, very good novel for uh, laying out the groundwork for uh, the history behind uh, a moment in Kierkegaard's life that a lot of people learn about from biographies, but the way the way she kind of imaginatively retells it is really quite captivating. So faithful in a literary sense, in the sense that Caroline's characters, like the characters in, in, the, in the other novels written by the other storytellers, the characters are developed across time, uh, revealing, you know, deep psychological, social and emotional truth. Um, and it's, and it's faithful in the sense that there is a kind of a felicitous telling of the story. Um, so I think this is good literature or faithful literature in that sense. So I would, I would say that. Um, faithful in the sense, in the second sense of um, it's true to the protagonist's desire for, um, for trust or a sense of wonder, maybe even a reverence for the world and those who move through it. Um, faithful in a sense that uh, it's not afraid actually to deal with, with honest doubt. Anyone who knows and comes to know anything about Kierkegaard, and I would really suggest you start with Caroline Coleman's um, novel, Loving Soren. Um, anyone who studies Kierkegaard actually comes to a realization that one of Kierkegaard's battle cries or his watchwords was truth is subjectivity. Um, that is to say, not, not truth is whatever I make it to mean. He's not a voluntarist like Nietzsche. Truth is, is uh, that which grabs you at the very pit of your entrails. It, it has to do with your passionate inwardness. It has to do with um, what Kierkegaard calls an approximation process of the most passionate inwardness. I think Caroline actually gets at that. She gets at the struggle that Kierkegaard felt in trying to understand what it meant to be a Christian. She tells that in a felicitous way, what I think you get by way of the net result is a faithful fiction. Faithful in the sense that it is good literature. It's a felicitous retelling of a story. Um, but it's also faithful in the sense that it, it, it gives you a window on to the, um, the deep spiritual quest of the protagonist, in this case, Kierkegaard. We, we could just as easily be talking about another writer in there, William Wilson, who writes a screenplay about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Bonhoeffer's quest to understand what, meant, what it meant to say that, that God was, was very much uh, involved in the secular world, even in the midst of war. That, that was Bonhoeffer's question. William Wilson gets at that through a felicitous retelling of the story of, of, of Bonhoeffer's uh, arrest and, and then subsequent execution at the hands of the Nazis in 1945. Um, it, it's, it's faithful to the story, faithful to good literature. Well, you touched on it a little bit earlier uh, about iconoclasm. Um, there's always been that thread, uh, both within Judaism, Christianity, uh, no graven images, you know, the, especially the Protestants' destruction of, of uh, Catholic statues, and then <clears throat> Calvin and Calvinist's own uh, suspicion of, of hymns composed by humans rather than using just the Psalms. Um, and and uh, Christian historical fiction kind of lends itself to some way to some of the concerns that are related to the notion that art somehow can be used inappropriately. 
uh, mm -hmm. to express faith. Um, and you talk about the, uh, the darker side of faith-filled writing. Uh, so kind of talk about, talk about that. Yeah, so, so early on in, in the book, I talk about the darker side of, of faith-filled writing. Um, and really there I'm actually talking about, about the industry. Um, there is this um, industry, if you will, of, of faith-filled um, films as well as fiction, actually. And I think that the darker side shows up in, in some of those stories that kind of trade in a, um, an, an, an easy and a simple triumphalism where uh, the Christian story or the or the Christian theme is the one that is victorious over all others. Sometimes um, a character it goes through something of a trial, but ultimately wins out at the end. Um, that kind of uh, sense that that Christianity is um, that, that um, yes, it's 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 one of many narratives that are out there, but it's by far and away the superior narrative. Sometimes that shows up in some fiction, and then I think what you have there is is in some ways a failure in faith. Um, I I don't think um, that the Christian stories great value comes from its triumphalism. If, if anything, there's a, um, there's a pouring out of self um, that is there in Philippians 2 and that is modeled by Jesus that doesn't sit very well with a kind of triumphalism uh, or what Martin Luther would call the, the theology of glory, right? The theology of the cross is, is a theology which in literary stand in a literary standpoint shows itself up in those characters who are who are profoundly aware that life is not all about them it's actually about a radical unselfing of who they are and sometimes i think some of the christian fiction that i've read i i just i'll be honest with you i would just want to put it down or go take it to half price books it's not it's not saying much to me beyond the sense that um I don't know. Tr trusting God means that everything's going to going to win out perfectly in the end. So that triumphalism can be an easy triumphalism can be part of that dark side. But then so too can cynicism. Some people will write um, and, and have in mind here sort of secular critics or secular writers who toy with religion, but sometimes their their religious characters are kind of um, disingenuous or cynical or. Um, uh, manipulative, dishonest, kind of huckster figures. Sometimes Hollywood and its filmmaking presents religious people like this, not to be trusted, deeply manipulative. Um, so the cynicism uh, alongside of the triumphalism can be part of that dark side um, of, of, um, of writing. There's also a sense in which the marketplace drives so much of, of the faith-filled writing. It's It's sad to me, really, that um, the, some of the novelists that I've read uh, and interviewed for this book um, use the self-publishing. Um, um, they travel down the self-publishing road. Um, they, they, they use the kind of create space independent publishing through Amazon or something like that. Um, and and these, these individuals are putting out some fantastic stories that are imaginative retellings of some of the theologians from from yesteryear, some of the forebears in faith. And, 
and their distribution, their circulation is 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 limited, and I, I lament that. Um, you know, but to enter into the industry, into that marketplace, is to put yourself into a, a, a pretty dark space. Um, so it would seem from from individuals that I have spoken to, and and some of them are quite happy actually, just you know, working under their own steam and publishing their own work. And if it gets out there, it gets out there. If people take an interest, they take an interest. And, um, you know, every one of the interviewees that I had were just thrilled that I had an interest in the work that they had put out there. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think some of those things are what I had in mind when I was talking about the darker side of, of the faith-filled um, writing industry, if you will. Um, but I think in, you know, just to return to your uh, observation about iconoclasm and, and graven images and art that can be, um, um, misconstrued or, 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 or can do dangerous things. And some of it can actually, um, you know, there's still a part of me that wants to, as a, as a, as a, as a good Catholic want to appeal to, um, sacramentalism even a pan sacramentalism i think i think the word takes flesh wherever it will um and in that sense i'm a i'm a, an incarnational theologian um one of the ironies sometimes of um christian doctrine is that it begins with the religion of the body but then doesn't really know what to do with that um you know the the word will always become flesh and the incarnation will always be trying to reach beyond the figure of jesus of nazareth um you know, there's that there's that story of Jesus kind of being recognized in one of the post-resurrection appearances on the road to Emmaus, recognized in the breaking of the bread, and then he disappears. Well, you know, I think it's I think it's Hans Urs von Balthasar who talks about asking when he asks the question, where does Jesus disappear to? When he disappears into the mission of the church, and the mission of the church is to extend the incarnation's reach. One way in which that happens is through art. The incarnation extends its reach through art, um, and and that can be seen in lots of different ways. Um, but the word will make will take flesh wherever it will, uh, and so I'm interested, I think, in those spiritual stories, however scandalous, however controversial, um, that lie around us um, in the often unexplored regions of ordinary lives, and and novelists, gifted novelists, can often get at those stories. And um, and help us understand ourselves and others uh, much better in the process. Well, it kind of connected with that um, in in um, your interview with Joan uh, Mueller. Uh, you said that uh, Christians in the Middle Ages sought fresh ways to extend the incarnation's reach. Um, in what ways do you see that happening? You mentioned the novels as well, but are there other ways that you see see that happening uh, today? Yeah, I think um, obviously the church's commitment to social justice, uh, the church's um, interest in being a pivotal player in responses to things like climate change, um, to anti-racism, to poverty, um, 
the church has always taken an interest in those things, of course, um, particularly in social justice. Uh, some churches, some branches of the Christian tree are much better, it seems, um, than others in doing that. But I do think that um, wherever you see that commitment, that you see the incarnation's reach being extended. I'd also like to think that uh, an improvement in theological literacy and in liturgical sensitivity in ecumenical relatedness and interfaith togetherness, those where those things actually occur, um, that too is part of the the extension of the incarnation's reach. Because you know that's the church doing its job of engaging the wider culture of taking the gospel into the into the wider world, um, and and seeking to to improve. Um, what's actually happening in that wider world, including itself. You know, I mean, sometimes mission, I think, is not just about taking the gospel into the wider world. That mission is also a mission that's internal, hence the emphasis on liturgical sensitivity or theological literacy. Um, I often say to people when I, I'm in adult Christian education workshops, um, we're all theologians. Insofar as you open your mouth and say anything about God, even if it's just in the form of regular prayer, we're all theologians. The point is, how do I become a good one? And for that, I think it's about improving theological literacy. And one answer to how do I improve theological literacy uh, is, is obviously to read more of the primary sources and absorb them, discuss them, talk about them, think them through, wrestle with one's forebears in faith. Um, Sometimes, sometimes the groups that I um, speak to are made up of folk who are intimidated by the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas or the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. So I kind of say to them, look, I, primary sources are one thing, but if, if, if you're going to start anywhere, perhaps start with a novel about John Calvin. Perhaps start with a novel about Thomas Aquinas or Hildegard or Catherine of Siena. Um, or Pope Francis, if you want to get a handle on who they are, just just mentally migrate into their story and, and maybe come to understand the important truth that that theologian's biography, their social location, shapes so much of why they think uh, and what they have given to us by way of um, an enduring theological legacy, let's say. So that's I, I find, is a good place to start. And, and thankfully... The feedback that I've received across the years, um, and I've been doing this for over 10, 12 years now, of, of teaching these Christian historical fictions, uh, of putting them in front of folk in book clubs and just sort of saying, um, you know, what, what, what do you think? And they've learned some things about um, Irenaeus or uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Søren Kierkegaard that they never, I mean, they've heard the names, but they hadn't really delved too deeply, and the fiction has enabled them to at least delve a little deeper than what they have been able to do up until that point. Well, kind of connected with your interest in, in uh, theological literacy, um, in your interview with uh, Margaret O'Reilly, you say that Aristotelianism had an immense influence on Thomas's development, especially in understanding the proper character and purpose of Christian reflection, um, I guess connected with that sense of, of of theological literacy. What do you see to be that proper purpose and character? 
Um, I tend to, I'm, I'm awfully fond of answering questions like this um, by invoking something that my um, theological seminary president once said to a group of, of ordinands back in, back in Manchester. He once said, you have to remember whenever you're doing theology that, that a theologian is a bit like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that may or may not be there. <laughs> and I've always, I, you know, it always raises a chuckle in me. Every time I say it, it seems to raise a chuckle in everyone that I share it with. And I've shared it countless times now. It, it's, it's amusing. It reminds me that all good theology um, it must have some humor in there, right? I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once said that the test of a good religion is whether or not you can make a joke of it. Um, and Martin Luther once said, if they don't laugh in heaven, then I don't wish to go. Um, but that's that's where I usually begin. And more seriously, a comment like that takes me into the idea of theological humility, right? Um, the one thing that I find difficult about theology or reading some types of theology, both theology from the past, but also theology from the present, is that it's, it's all altogether quite confident, maybe even too confident in its declarations and assertions. And so there's something about the human situational and fallible quality of theology that I always want to draw attention to whenever I'm answering a question like this. Now, the way the way I would answer it in a formal way is, for me, the proper character of, of theological reflection um, is, is, is best understood by saying that it's a theology is a kind of a second order reflection on the first order uh, activity of religious or spiritual experience. So what 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 I don't think we have is um, in 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 proper <laughs> theological reflection is an intellectualizing activity that comes first. I don't think that at all. I think. In some ways, theology follows. That's what I mean when I say it's a second-order activity. Uh, theology follows from the first-order activity of religious experience. So there's something about one's sense of um, wonder, mystery, that sense that we don't explain ourselves. And here we could be referencing, I don't know, Friedrich, Friedrich Schleiermark, Schleiermacher's idea of the feeling of absolute dependence, that right down at the very deep of uh, sort of entrails of who I am, there's a sense that I don't explain myself. Um, that, that is the first order activity of religious experience, that sense that I'm hardwired for meaning. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a hardwiring for God, but certainly a hardwiring for meaning. We are meaning-seeking, meaning-crafting animals, it seems to me. Um, and that that is part of the first order activity of, of spiritual or religious experience. Theology comes after that in the sense that it's a second order activity. It's, it's a, a thinking through of that trust or that faith or that sense of wonder and reverence that is the first order activity. Hopefully that, that makes some kind of sense. I'm, I'm one of the other things that I'm often fond of saying, and here I'm, it's not an original idea. It's something I picked up from my professor that I had at Oxford, Rowan Williams, who went on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. Rowan Williams used to say that theology in some ways kind of always nags away at the logic of experience and then stories and rituals 
um, as a way to kind of conceptualize and order and give some kind of structure to what is often sometimes an unstructured um, sense of things, uh, uh, an experience. Experience doesn't come fully formed. We have to think it through. And so theology is that kind of second order activity grounded in that first order um, experience. And that for me is the, the, the proper character and purpose of, of Christian reflection. Um, I think you, one wants a faith that then goes off in search of understanding, not an understanding that then goes off in search of a faith, if that makes sense. Um, you speak of the fact that um, folks are attracted to people like Francis. Uh, because of the fact that they are in the midst of a crisis of meaning. Um, how do you see that crisis? Um, one, way, one way to see it, David, is the way I have uh, observed it, at least since the late 1990s. With each passing year, um, that I have been involved with uh, U.S. higher education, and if if one counts my five years at Rhodes and twenty four years at TCU, and now one year at Baylor, that's that's getting on for a generation, almost thirty years in U.S. higher education. And the trend that I've observed is, and and this this should be no surprise, um, a trend towards religious disaffiliation um, that that often shows up in that kind of. Um, it's a bit of a time-worn phrase now, of course. Um, I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, there, there's a strong sense in which the institutional church um, has, for all sorts of reasons, become desperately unpopular with a lot of the young people that I um, am entrusted with with teaching and, and, and aiding their intellectual and spiritual formation. Those 18 to 22-year-olds that I come across every year, they they always stay the same and I just get older, right? But if there's one thing that I've observed, it's that they seem to be going through what a lot of them do call a crisis of meaning. They um, have belonged to churches if they belonged at all, but now they don't darken the door of a church. Um, for a while, they were excited by the kind of spiritual voluntarism that follows from not darkening the door of a church. You know, you get to make it up as you go along. You, you get to decide what um, spiritually or religiously eclectic set of values or ideas that you want to subscribe to. It's, it's, um, it's a voluntarism. It's a kind of, I think um, Bishop Robert Barron calls it a culture of self-invention. Um, that can be very empowering and very freeing, but I, I've noticed a trend since, uh, you know, the 2010s uh, coming forward all the way down to the present time um, where that crisis of meaning seems to intensify. That a lot of young people, a lot of 18 to 22-year-olds are saying um, that that culture of self-invention, that, that permission to think for themselves religiously and spiritually is is not really all it's cracked up to be they 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 need something a little um more stable they need some uh firm statements about what something is before they respond to it they 
they are returning to, in some cases, traditionalism. Um, just as, as a Catholic, for example, there's a, I'm, I'm noticing uh, a, a lot of young people drawn to um, uh, Latin masses, for example, um, very traditional forms of, of Catholicism. Um, I'm not drawn to it myself, but I see a lot of 18 to 30-year-olds drawn to the Latin mass because there's there's something in that traditionalism that kind of takes them away from what they see as the darker side of of, of voluntarism. They they see and this and sense a crisis of meaning. They don't think that they've got all the resources within themselves to be able to to respond to that crisis. Um, well, then in, in connect with that, then um, you say. Um, in the end, my book teaches Christian historical fiction works best when it creates a spiritual alchemy in the soul of particular readers, helping them to feel allied to the church's past witness as well as closer to God, less fretful or alone, and when it motivates readers to step out into tomorrow, uh, keen to become well-versed in the study and transformative practice of good theology. Now, I say amen to that, but but um, is this your offering of a way to help address the crisis? Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I want, I want uh, in some ways to encourage um, young people, but, but also the um, older folk that I meet in some of those adult Christian education workshops that I spoke about earlier. Um, they're, they're deeply interested in returning to the past for all sorts of reasons to try and figure out what has been said. They're, they're committed to trying to figure out what I would call the history of the question. Um, you know, and, and an alternative to that is simply to be cavalier and say, well, the problem that we're experiencing now is, is our problem. No one's ever really wrestled with it um, before. I think that would be a very cavalier understanding of Christian history. Um, so I encourage those who are in the midst of trying to figure out what their faith looks like to sort of dig deep into the past. And here you're beginning to get in, in the language that I'm using, digging deep. You can see how my own social location is beginning to betray me because, you know, I'm a coal miner's son. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here about mining history, about quarrying the Christian tradition there's something valuable about doing that because most of us would, I mean, a, a valuable diamond's not just going to sit on the surface along with the topsoil and wait for you to come along. You're going to have to do some, some heavy lifting, some heavy digging, some, some excavating, some quarrying to get to, um, you know, those, those important valuable things, uh, whether it was in the case of my father back in the 70s and, and 80s, uh, coal, um, which, which was always seen as the black diamond uh, in, in, uh, in, in the UK, at least, if not elsewhere around the world. Um, to get at that, you really have to sort of do some, some hard work. It, it won't come to you easily. Um, but start, start simple. Um, there's something about fiction that I think, um, something that fiction does that some theology does, but not all of it. Fiction, good fiction, uh, arrests the soul. That's what I mean by that spiritual alchemy. And here I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to betray the kind of theologians I've been influenced by. And, and here I have in mind the Roman Catholic theologian, 
um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who made beauty. Um, he was a very cultured man, um, could, have, could have lived his life as a concert pianist from what I read. Um, very much a, uh, an extremely voracious reader of fiction as well as, as theology. Um, a, a pivotal player in, in, uh, in some of the developments in Roman Catholic theology in the 20th century. Um, I, you know, beauty is a central motif in what he has to say. Beauty has the ability to take the individual outside of themselves, to actually stimulate moments of self-transcendence where you begin to see yourself against a much larger backdrop. Um, and, and to see yourself as playing a part in, in, um, in a history that continues to unfurl, as it were. What he has in mind is, is the way in which beauty sometimes ironically comes out of, out of something ugly. I mean, he, he looks at the crucifixion. Golgotha is not a particularly beautiful sight, but out of that ugliness, there flows a beauty. It's as though Christ and his death on the cross is like a neutron in a chain reaction of personal and social transformation. Um, beauty arrests the soul, sends it out on a mission. That's, that's what Balthazar said. And I think good literature will do that. Certainly it has done that for me, just to go back to The Last Temptation of Christ. I read that. The scales fell from my eyes. Um, you know, the final sentence of that novel uh, is with Jesus breathing his last words, it is finished. And then the omniscient narrator of the novel says, and it is though everything had begun again. And there is a sense in which even with the final sentence of the novel, Kazanzakis is challenging the reader to continue uh, to extend the incarnation's reach to be Christ wherever you find yourself. It's not finished with Christ. It begins anew with all of his followers. Fiction has that ability to do that, to, to take people outside of themselves and then to send them out on a mission. Um, that mission is going to change, it's going to differ, it's going to differ from reader to reader. But um, in the case of, of these Christian historical fictions, um, I've seen it happen with, with folk that I have, I've taught in, in, uh, in an undergraduate class, but also in adult Christian education seminars and workshops and Sunday schools. You put a novel in front of them, and maybe, just maybe, they'd heard of Hildegard, uh, or they'd heard of, um, um, you know, Martin Luther or uh, Catherine of Siena. And, um, and then they read the novel and we discuss it, and they want to know more. They, they, they go to some primary sources. They go to maybe uh, Thomas Aquinas's collection of prayers, or they go to um, uh, some of Luther's primary sources, and they find themselves, therefore, digging into history, um, mining the Christian tradition, and, um, and returning, unearthing, returning to themselves with something deeply valuable. That's what I mean by that final comment. Well, you, you ask one of your uh, authors, uh, what is it you never get asked in an interview that you think should be asked? And he responded uh, that uh, to what extent is what you are and have done dependent on what your wife is and what she has done? Uh, and your wife is rather accomplished as well, theologian. And, she is. So, uh, so I'll let you answer that question. Thank you. That's that's a very good question. Um, 
And and Sinclair Ferguson, who who writes the children's book on Irenaeus that I begin the book with, answers it so perfectly, so splendidly, because um, he really does tip his hat to to just how much his wife has shaped his theological outlook and just his way of moving through the world across the years. And I find myself deeply touched by that. Um, but I'm 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 struck by the power and the poignancy of that question for me because I would have to answer in a in a similar way to Sinclair. Um, you know, there have been ways in which my wife has has been a um a great symbol of grace and um kindness uh, across the years for me, um, for my for our son. Um intellectually, my wife is is uh, an American religious historian and one thing one of the many things she's taught me is that people on the ground are often more complicated than what the textbooks say about them. Um, and she's written about Southern Baptists and evangelicals and women within the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's all. It's, it's a complicated narrative and it's, it's an ongoing narrative. But if there's one thing that she has um, really given to me across the years is the idea that that you always approach your subjects with empathy and with compassion and with sensitivity. Some groups, uh, particularly for those who see themselves as theologically liberal, some groups are easy to dismiss. Evangelicals might be one of them, right? Um, And maybe evangelicals find theological liberals easy to dismiss too. But my wife's work in American religious history has always challenged me in the sense that she has a, a a care and a compassion and a kindness towards the subjects that she studies that is um that is really quite spectacular to see there's there's a there's a certainly you can see in her writing in her research in her just uh, ordinary interactions on the ground with the people that she's interviewing she's conducting oral histories with you can see why um, she is just a fantastic um, uh, Christian um, academic. Um, I will say one other thing. She's given me across the years some excellent book recommendations. And um, (laughs) uh, I never heard uh, in the, I guess it would be, when would it be? 1996 was the first time I ever came across the name of Shusako Endo. But I remember talking to her about Graham Greene and she said, well, have you ever heard of Shusako Endo? And I said, well, no, who's, who, who is Endo? And, and Endo, for those of your listeners who do not know, is a was a Japanese Roman Catholic novelist, often referred to as the Japanese Graham Greene, hence her recommendation. And famous for uh, many novels, but the two that really stand out uh, are his novel uh, Silence, which was... Uh, recently made into a film by Martin Scorsese. Uh, And then uh, towards the end of Endo's life, he wrote a pilgrimage novel where he had four or five Japanese tourists descend upon um, uh, Benares, uh, the the, the river Ganges in India. And it's a kind of an Asian Canterbury Tales novel, but it's, it's, um, it, it uh, trades in some of the process theology that I've been interested in throughout my life. Um, I wouldn't call myself a card-carrying process theologian, but um, but I have been interested in it 
across the years. And, and Ender was clearly drawn to it towards the end of his life. So those two novels, I read them. And again, you know, my wife, I have to credit her with, with giving me those recommendations. I found those two novels fantastic. I have taught them for many years. And um, when I when I wasn't interviewing novelists for this particular book, The Writer and the Cross, I was um, uh, working with a network of endo scholars from around the globe uh, on two collections of essays. One, a collection of essays on Silence, the novel, uh, and then one, uh, a follow-up collection of essays on Deep River, which is the Asian Canterbury Tales novel I just mentioned. So again, um, you know, academically, vocationally, intellectually, and, and I dare say spiritually, my wife has influenced me so much in terms of teaching me about the importance of people on the ground being far more complicated than what we can read about in books. Um, but when it comes to books, she's given me uh, access to so many writers um, that have in turn influenced me to the point where I've actually written about them. Um, and I'm not saying a single word here about how she put me onto George Eliot. This would, this would be a very long answer to your question, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Why don't we conclude then by letting you kind of talk about who you're reading now, novelists, theologians. Um, I'm still working my way through uh, Baltazar's um, um, works. There, there are lots of them. And um, Hans Urs von Baltazar is one of those individuals who's not an easy read. He, I think he repays close attention, but it takes a lot of time. So I'm working my way through, through some of his materials. Um, I'm always going back to Thomas Merton. Um, partly because I think his own interest in literature and religion, um, very different to mine, but, um, but an inspiration nonetheless. When it comes to fiction, um, I've been drawn to a lot of poetry uh, recently. So uh, I mentioned Carl Dennis a little earlier. Um, some of his poems are, are really quite, uh, quite powerful. Uh, Charles Wright um, who was uh, Poet Laureate at one point a few years ago. Um, if you like poetry that kind of deals in Heideggerian themes um, and has got a kind of Zen-like quality to it, then Charles Wright is really interesting. Uh, two novels that have been on my desk, I finally finished them. Um, Ian McEwan, I'll read anything by the, by the British novelist Ian McEwan. Not, not really a um, card-carrying Christian writer by any stretch of the imagination. He's He's part of the the, the new atheist crowd actually, or at least was in the early 2000s. Um, but I, I find his, his work quite, uh, quite edifying and, and instructive. He deals with a variety of different topics and themes um, that, that do connect in, I think, with faith, but not from a believer's standpoint. That's always challenging, though. So Lessons, which is a novel that uh, he put out just a couple of um, months ago, um, I finally finished reading that one. And then the new one by Cormac McCarthy which I gather is not so new. It's been, it's been something he's working on, been working on since the 1980s, but The Passenger is, a, is an interesting novel. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, little, a little bit like a crossword puzzle to me, um, which is not always how I like my novels, but I, I will read anything that Cormac McCarthy writes. That's, I think he's um, probably America's finest living novelist. Well, Darren, I'm grateful. Uh, for you being with me today. Uh, your book is a wonderful read, uh, fascinating, raises all kinds of questions, and does what I think you you talk about it doing. Uh, and so I'm grateful for that and for the work that you do. 
so thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David. I appreciate the time we've had together here. Thank you. Well, you're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.